Maybe I'll go riding. Okay. What do you think? Well, I can't plan your day. I mean, would you care to join me? Lord, no, I'm not retired. Maybe I'll help out here then. Uh, better not. How'd you sleep? I don't know. I had dreams. Well, you got time for them now. Anything interesting? There always is to the party concerned. Ed Tom, I'll be polite. All right, then. Two of them both had my father in them. It's peculiar. I'm older now than he ever was by 20 years. So, in a sense, he's the younger man. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere and he gave me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in the older times and I was a horseback going through the mountains of a night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground and he rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store. and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever i'm zach i'm matt and this is episode number 297 no country for old men revisited this is perhaps the last time i can remember being enthusiastic about a best picture winner wow at least to this level like a movie that i loved that i was like yes this will be rewatchable for years to come yeah well I would agree that it has been rewatchable for years to come, and I definitely was excited about Best Picture winners back then, in a way that certainly not now. Yeah, it's weird looking back on that time, because it was The Departed and then this, and then I don't think there would ever be two back-to-back quite like that again. We first covered No Country for Old Men way back on November 22nd, 2016. It was episode number 43. I rarely remember those old episodes, but I can distinctly remember recording this one because I know you were sick. I was so sick. 
I can remember in this time period going to visit my parents for Thanksgiving, being sick, and then going back to visit them for Christmas, and I was still sick. It was like a horrible year. I don't know if it was the flu or what, but I just like could not get better. Yeah, it was an hour and three minutes of coughing, <laughs> basically. I remember coughing a lot and being sick. I don't know why we were pushing forward with it. I just had that thing where it's like hard to breathe through your nose, too, and then like talking is just a real challenge. Yeah. Even more so than it usually is for me. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you new to the program, a revisited episode is a brand new episode, so we're covering this as if we never did before, because our first 100 or so episodes, 90-something probably, aren't super great. We've improved, in our opinion. So we're going to tackle this subject again. It's one of our favorite films. This is our last revisited of 2022. We decided to do six this year after doing four last year. I think six was a bit much. I think we're going to scale it back down next year. But there are plenty of early subjects to recover, in Definitely. my opinion. So there will always be some to get to, but I think next year we're only going to do four. Plenty of shitty episodes to redo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find us. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know. We'll send that out to you. You can hit us up on Twitter and find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. Stay tuned for the end of the episode. We'll talk about our schedule for the rest of the year and possibly discuss a little bit about listener requests moving into 2023. Mm -hmm. So if you have any interest in that kind of stuff, hang on till the end. I'm not going to repeat it twice. So let's jump into... No Country for Old Men. It was released in 2007, actually one day after my 24th birthday. Oh. So there's a little tidbit. Yeah, a time in life that's since forgotten. Oh, yeah. It's crazy that this movie is now 15 years old. Oh, I know. It's nuts. It was directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. screenplay by... Joel and Ethan Cohen, based huh. on the 2005 novel of the same name by Cormac McCarthy. Elephant in the Room, let's address it. This movie, story-wise, theme-wise, is pretty similar to our last episode, A Simple Plan. In the past, I would have noticed that and run away from it and switched things around to avoid it. This time, when I noticed it, ran with it, decided to embrace it. Totally. A theme of hopelessness in <laughs> December right now for us. Yeah, that's one of the things that I do love about this movie and the Coen brothers' approach to it. The pessimistic view, the cynicism about the world, I'm here for it. Yeah. Now, I love A Simple Plan. I think A Simple Plan is a great film. But the big difference to me is that A Simple Plan is a story very well told, whereas there's a whole other existential philosophical thing going on with no country for old men that elevates it to an even higher level definitely and the cinematic quality to no country for old men is off the charts too yeah the artistry just... is is definitely a higher level as well not to denigrate sure a simple plan at all but there's just a lot going on in totally. this movie the yes. symbolism is much richer and deeper there's a whole other level which is why it, one best picture and why it's so critically acclaimed and, and noteworthy. But even 
surface level value of No Country for Old Men, it's an amazing movie. The action sequences are super cool. It's tense. There's great characters. Anton Shakur might be the best villain of the last 25 years. The budget was $25 million. Box office, $171.6 million. No Country for Old Men was nominated for eight Academy Awards, winning four. Had nominations in Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Film Editing, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, and it won Best Adapted Screenplay for the Coens, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, First Spanish Actor to Win an Oscar. Best Director was shared by the Coens, which is rare. Yeah. Most of the time, that's not really allowed under Academy rules, except for special prearranged agreements, I guess, because they don't want these actors who are stepping in and co-directing films and all that kind of stuff that was happening a lot in the 70s. I think that's why these rules were established. Mm -hmm. And then finally, one best picture. But for editing, that was them too, but they used a fake name. Yes. But then got nominated, which is wild. This was actually the second film in history to have co-directors win a Best Director Oscar, the first being West Side Story in 1961, Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise. Mm. Scott Rudin purchased the rights and pitched it to the Coens, who at the time were attempting to adapt the novel To the White Sea by James Dickey. This is the first straight Cohen adaptation from source material. As we discussed when we covered Miller's Crossing earlier in the year, they took a lot of inspiration from Dashiell Hammett combining two Mm. existing stories, but it's not really a straight adaptation. The Big Lebowski, heavily influenced by Raymond Chandler, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou is sort of a retelling of the Odyssey. But again, this is the first time they actually straight up adapted something. Yeah, and I think it came as a surprise to me that they were approached about this. You watch this, and it does just seem so up their alley, and I guess maybe that's the reason why they were approached, but my first inclination would be that, oh, they are such big fans of this book, and they're like, we have to make this movie. Obviously not the case. By August 2005, the Coens agreed to write and direct the film, having identified with how it provided a sense of place, and also how it played with genre conventions. Joel Cohen said that the book's unconventional approach was, quote, familiar, congenial to us, we're naturally attracted to subverting genre. We liked the fact that the bad guys never really meet the good guys, that McCarthy did not follow through on formula expectations. Ethan Cohen explained that the pitiless quality was a hallmark of the book, which has an unforgiving landscape and characters, but is also about finding some kind of beauty without being sentimental. Most of the film is pretty faithful to the book, They like to make the joke that all they did was one of them sat at the typewriter, the other one just took the book and flattened it out, and they just transcribed from there. But they did trim where necessary for time constraints. Yeah, a rare instance where I've actually read the book. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Maybe you can jump in with some of the differences. It's been a little bit. It's been a little (laughs) while. In certain times in my life, there were certain movies that it made me want to read the book, and yeah. this was one of I those. read the book, too. I don't really remember it very well. I, I have a hard time with Cormac McCarthy's books, which I, is embarrassing it's... to admit for someone who was an English major in college. Well, he kind of has this stream-of-conscious, long, run-on sentences style. Joel Cohen said, why not start with the best 
in regards to starting their adaptation career with McCarthy. The title is taken from the opening line of the 20th century Irish poet William Butler Yeats's poem, Sailing to Byzantium. I bet you didn't expect me to be reading a poem on this podcast. <laughs> oh, no, but I've learned to expect the unexpected. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies, caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect. Richard Gilmore relates the Yeats's poem to the Cohen's film, saying, The lament that can be heard in these lines is for no longer belonging to the country of the young. It is also a lament for the way the young neglect the wisdom of the past and presumably of the old. Yeats chose Byzantium because it was a great early Christian city in which Plato's academy for a time was still allowed to function. The historical period of Byzantium was a time of culmination that was also a time of transition. Certainly within the context of of the movie No Country for Old Men, one has the sense, especially from Bell as the chronicler of the times, that things are out of alignment, that balance and harmony are gone from the land and from the people. Something that I think has universal relatability. But to me, especially by the end of the film, after Tommy Lee Jones's Ed Tom Bell goes out and speaks with Barry Corbin's old and forgotten Ellis, you realize that Fear of these things is cyclical. The existential crisis is not unique to Ed Tom or 1980. I believe that everyone feels it at one time or another, especially the men at the front lines trying to hold the darkness at bay. The tide is relentless, but you don't feel it the same way when you're young. You only understand the inevitability once you slow down and start growing old. Yeah, like me watching TikTok. You're just like, (laughs) this is no country for me. (laughs) Once again, much like Fargo or Blood Simple or even like their buddies film, A Simple Plan, the Coens find themselves attracted to familiar themes like nihilism. The novel treads in the waters of chance, free will, and predestination, more familiar territory for the Coens. Turns out that Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers was a match made in heaven, completely on the same page. No Country for Old Men has echoes of not only Fargo and Blood Simple throughout, but other Cohen works as well, especially in Raising Arizona. If you pay attention to all the little details, they definitely reference their own films within oh, yeah. this film a few times. Yeah, it is a match made in heaven. It's this perfect film harmony. And there are a few times, dare I say, that the Coens changed up a few things in this film. Minor details, really, but that I think enhance the experience. And we'll talk about some of them, especially one towards Mm. the end of the film with Carla Carla Jean. Jean. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting choice, and it really reframes the end of the film in an interesting way. Uh What can be said about Tommy Lee Jones in this film? One of my favorite performances in any film ever period yeah tired but still also hilarious i remember seeing this film in the theater multiple times and just being obsessed with tommy lee jones Mm -hmm. after this movie thinking this is the best performance i've ever seen a quiet tired bewilderment 
a man of virtue and honesty and even good humor, caught in something he is fully aware of and yet can't quite fathom. And there's a dignity in their performance, a contained emotion, which is sometimes hard to convey. And this movie is difficult for a couple of the actors. I I think it's especially difficult for Josh Brolin, who goes long stretches without even talking. Uh But there's this delicate balance to all of the scenes with Tommy Lee Jones where you can tell that underneath the emotions are starting to get to him, but he still has that same demeanor on the surface. And I think it's just a really remarkable performance. And yes, it's also funny too. He has that homespun Southern charm kind of a thing. Yeah. I think all three of these dudes work so well in the roles. Yeah. Roger Deakins, not as flashy as some of his other collaborations with the Coens, but brilliant nonetheless. It's it's much more subtle. The camera movements understated. Never draw attention to themselves. The landscape is sparse, dark, unforgiving. There's a lot of naturalism involved as well. Lightning, clouds, huge skies, a mostly fixed camera. It's completely different from say Fargo. Oh yeah. Where a lot of the shots are artistic and you could print them out and hang them on your wall but it's a little different with no country for old men it's much more about capturing the enormity of the outdoors that they're in a lot of the times especially the beginning i know yeah some of it it reminds you of there will be blood which came out the same year well that brings me to my next point marfa texas there will be blood the filming overlap that we discussed go listen to that episode i'm not going to talk about it again (laughs) though most of No Country for Old Men was actually filmed in a place called Las Vegas, New Mexico. Oh, fun. But they did film a little bit in Texas, much at the urging of Tommy Lee Jones, who insisted that they needed to at least film some there. <laughs> okay. Very Tommy committed. Lee Jones, I guess, had some influence, although they ended up having to, the studio ended up having to pay him like $15 million later because yeah, of that lawsuit. I uh, almost never watched the news, but I can actually remember that being on the regular news. <laughs> which Your is local a, news yeah like it was always weird because you just weren't usually diving into hollywood stars being shorted on like major successful movies i think it had something to do with the way that his contract was originally gr- drawn up or something yeah I, i'm not really sure of the details i was sheriff of this county when i was 25 years old hard to believe my grandfather was a lawman father too me and him were sheriffs at the same time, him up in Plano and me out here. I think he's pretty proud of that. I know I was. Some of the old-time sheriffs never read more a gun. A lot of folks find that hard to believe. Jim Scarborough never carried one. That's the younger Jim. Gaston Borkins wouldn't wear one up in Comanche County. I always like to hear about the old-timers. Never missed a chance to do so. You can't help but compare yourself against the old-timers. Can't help but wonder how they'd operated these times. There's this boy I sent to the electric chair at Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14-year-old girl. Papers said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it told me that he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. 
Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I surely don't. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay. I'll be part of this world. It's not rocket science, folks. Listen to Sheriff Ed Tom Bell as portrayed by Tommy Lee Jones whenever he speaks. Think about what he's saying. That's your movie right there. And I would say pretty similar to like our conversations when I come over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just listen to what I'm saying and you'll learn a lot. Right. In the opening narration, he tells the story of the young man who he's helping send to the electric chair for murdering a 14-year-old girl. And that story puts you into his mindset. He believes in the past that there was a certain rationality, even to crime, even to violence, per se. You understood who the good guys and bad guys were, and you understood that the bad guys had certain motivations. Not that the motivations made their crimes okay, but you understood what they were. It made sense. And now nothing makes sense to him anymore. The changes in violence and crime affect him a lot, and he talks about in the past not even carrying guns as lawmen. That's right. However, I think what the film knows is that these changes are inherent, inevitable, just like anything. Change is always painful in this context. It's just the people experiencing it firsthand who have a hard time with it, that's all. Yeah, I would say he moves to acceptance with relative ease, although I guess that's the point in his life that we're coming into. Uh, I'm not sure that I would say that it's like relative ease. Okay. I think you might be deceived by his performance. He's more depressed than he's letting on. Yeah, and I actually think that the conversation that opens his eyes a little bit that he has with Ellis makes him more depressed. Yeah. Because he understands that he's not even unique, that the world is just hard and mean and has always sucked. Uh And that makes it somehow even worse. Because this idealized dream he has in his head of what the past was was not real, really. Right. Sure, technology changes and improves. The drugs get harder. The guns get more dangerous. But essentially, mankind has always been terrible. (laughs) No, I know. In the opening narration, Bell refers to the sheriffs of two other Texas counties named Jim Scarborough and Gaston Boykins. Scarborough and Boykins really were the sheriffs of those counties at the time this film takes place. There are a few weird things like that which they incorporate into it, and yet I would say that there's a lot of anachronistic things in this movie that don't fit for 1980. Details, which I'll point out some of them when we get there, but if you pay attention to the background sometimes, there's definitely things that don't look like they would have looked in 1980, in my opinion. I, I agree with that, and it sort of doesn't feel like 1980 until Shakur actually tells you that's when it is. Right. And you're like, okay. But it's also maybe just because... Parts of Texas seem like they've probably been this way for yeah. a long time. I definitely didn't think it was 2007, but you yeah. could have told me it was any time between 1970 and 1995. It wouldn't have made any difference, right. really. So let's get into the story. As 
we've mentioned the year is 1980. Sheriff Bell's narration gives way to the opening scene of the film in which hitman Anton Chigurh is arrested in Texas. Chigurh, of course, played by Javier Bardem. Such a cool way to start this off, and especially after you've seen it one time, it's shocking that he's getting apprehended. <laughs> like, how, how can this be? And we're not even 100% sure for what. Right. They don't really say. Maybe they mention in a bit of dialogue very quickly later in the film, but it's kind of unclear what exactly is going on. Suspicion of mischief. (laughs) While in custody, Sugar manages to strangle a deputy sheriff with the handcuffs around his wrists and escape in a police car. And it's brutal, but it's also sort of hilarious because this kind of doofus police officer on the phone not seeing it happen he's like oh yeah the last thing he says is it's all under control and he's just immediately killed the cohen's used a photo of a brothel patron taken in 1979 as a model for Chigurh's page boy style haircut they were looking for something creepy and distinct it works and this ends up being one of the few cohen style quirks introduced into mccarthy's story this is not how Sugar's hair is described in the novel or anything like mm-hmm. that. They put a few of their little flourishes here and there, but it's a lot further in between than it would be in their own material. Sugar is supposed to be the unstoppable evil archetype. The man who fell to earth was a big influence as far as the introduction of the character. Okay. Sort of this alien almost arriving. You're not sure who he is, why he looks like this, where he came true. from. Doesn't quite seem human. It's almost the reverse of the shark from Jaws. Whereas in Jaws, the shark is kept from view and not revealed until the end. But here in No Country for Old Men, where you have this unstoppable evil force, it's very crystal clear what's coming. I know. Pretty quickly. But his presence is always unsettling. When Joel and Ethan Cohen approached Javier Bardem about playing Sugar, he replied, I don't drive, I speak bad English, and I hate violence. The Coens responded, that's why we called you. (laughs) Bardem said he took the role because it was his dream to be in a Coen Brothers film, but he nearly had to withdraw from the role due to issues with scheduling. English actor Mark Strong was put on standby to take over, but the scheduling issues were resolved and Bardem took the role. So the fact that Mark Strong, of all people, was the other choice leads you to believe that what they envisioned for this character could have been a wide variety Definitely. of things. That seems like a completely different version. And I don't know that McCarthy really had any specific ethnicity in mind. The name itself sounds like it could be from any number of yeah, countries, really. Yeah, I think really. I, I read that that was intentional from McCarthy's perspective. Yeah, According to a January 2018 article in Business Insider, a group of psychiatrists studied 400 movies and identified 126 psychopathic characters. They chose Javier Bardem's portrayal of Anton Chigurh as the most clinically accurate portrayal of a psychopath. How about that, Javier? (laughs) Nice job. I think you can figure it out pretty quick when he's choking this deputy sheriff and there's blood coming out of the sheriff's neck Ooh. and his own wrists and that look on his face yeah. is inhuman and it is really a horror movie style introduction to the character because as you said the deputy's on the phone and then out of focus in the background yeah. you start seeing him move and 
it's not unlike a horror movie, right? Where you're thinking, turn around, turn around, turn. Around. I know it's like Michael Myers or something. His movements are like so casual, escaping. You know, doing that move where he's putting his legs through his handcuffed arms. There's no panic. It's yeah. like the part in The Silence of the Lambs when they talk about Lecter biting the face off of that nurse and right. how his heart rate never went above uh-huh. whatever. Yep. Shigur then impersonates a police officer on the highway, pulling a man over and using a penetrating air-powered captive bolt pistol to kill the stranger in order to take his car. I can remember seeing this the first time, trying to wrap my head around what this instrument was. Yeah, it's definitely a, a unique weapon of choice, one that ultimately mirrors Shigur himself. It's cold, quiet, clean, efficient. A captive bolt pistol is commonly used to stun cows before slaughter without risk of flying bullets. In the film, its use is accompanied by a nail gun sound effect. And so we understand that Shigur acts as a bringer of dread, mm-hmm. not only to the characters in the film, but to the audience as well. I would say the way he uses that weapon is representative of his dismissiveness of humans. If this is something that's used to just kill cattle right like that's the way he uses it towards humans it does not phase him oh yeah for sure he is a (laughs) cold-blooded cold-blooded killer (laughs) and it's interesting because if you pay attention you know right away that he says hold still right to the man that he's about to kill as if he's going to do something normal and Uh decent and people don't really know how to react to him so they're not really necessarily suspicious and then our transition goes to Llewellyn Moss, right. played by Josh Brolin, who says the same thing to an animal as he's hunting. Yeah. And there's mirroring here. And this is the first time that any of the characters mirror each other, but there's a lot throughout the film. Mm-hmm. The hunters becoming the hunted and then switching back and forth several times. That's a big theme. And then when we first see Llewellyn here hunting, notice the huge, dark, looming shadow in the sky yeah over top i guess you could say that that's potentially a an omen of where things are headed i think so while hunting proghorns out in the desert llewellyn moss comes across the bloody aftermath of a drug deal gone bad he finds several dead men and dogs scattered around some shot up trucks a severely wounded mexican man begging for water and a shit ton of drugs in the back of one vehicle llewellyn then tracks the man who tried to get away from the firefight, finding him dead beneath a tree with $2 million in a black briefcase. Here we go. That moment. Should I take this? It's the same style briefcase as Fargo. I love Llewellyn's muted reaction. Oh, yeah. He opens it up and just goes, yep. (laughs) It almost tells you where we're going. Just that response. He knows he shouldn't. But he knows he has to yeah, at the same time. Exactly. Awesome visuals. There's a oh, thunderstorm in the distance as he's going back to his truck. It's a huge sky. It looks incredible. The role of Llewellyn Moss was originally offered to Heath Ledger, but he turned it down to spend time with his newborn daughter, Matilda. I will say that had he taken this part, it's unlikely that he would have played the Joker in the Dark Knight. I just don't think right. that the time would have synced up right, but I could be wrong. Yeah. No, that makes sense, though. Garrett Dillahunt was also in the running for the role of Llewellyn Moss, auditioning five times. Wow. 
but instead was offered the part of Wendell, Ed Tom Bell's deputy. Josh Brolin, who was not the Coens' first choice, enlisted the help of Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez to make an audition reel. His agent eventually secured a meeting with the Coens, and he was given the part, and then he would go on to work with them a couple more times. That is a cool story. I think when I saw this, granted, I had seen Grindhouse. I think he was an American gangster, too. But I was not really thinking of Josh Brolin as a leading man by any means. And it was kind of like a surprise to see this guy in this role. And I didn't even know who it was. Like, I did not remember or know that this was like the grown up version of the dude from the Goonies. That was something that I just pieced together through like IMDb like later, (laughs) you know. Yeah, well, it goes to show you how much times has changed because I don't think there's any leading men anymore. It's just a, a rotating cast because I don't really feel like Josh Brolin is a leading man now. No, that's true. But, but there really aren't that many, to right. be honest. But I know what you mean. Yeah. I think but he I, went on to have a run after this of being in things. Yeah, yeah. I think I was aware of him a little bit. I definitely knew he was the, the brother from the Goonies. But okay. I'm trying to remember. I don't know. It's it's really hard yeah. to remember how things were 15 years ago. I agreed. I get it. Llewellyn takes the money and returns home. He lives in a trailer park with his wife, Carla Jean, played by Kelly McDonald. Kind of a hilarious little chemistry between the two of them. The fact that McDonald is a Scottish actress blows me away. It's another incredible performance. It's sort of like you with the Goonies. Later, I realized she was in Train Spotting, but at the time, I didn't yeah. really know who she was. Incredible to me. Right. This is one of those moments, this scene, when you rewatch the movie several times. You know, it doesn't seem like these two have that bad of a life together. They kind of got a nice little rapport between the two of them. What would have this money really done? <laughs> it's like... I guess they could have moved out of the trailer park. But yeah, it's not quite the life that Hank was living in a simple plan. True. But they seem happy and comfortable and they don't really need the money because he has a job and she has a job. And you're just asking for trouble because... Unlike a simple plan where it's a little bit unclear who's going to come looking for the money, and if they did, would they even know where to look? Uh-huh. In this movie, you know that people are going to look for this money. Right. And you know that they're going to look in the area, but if he doesn't do what he does in a minute, he may have gotten away scot-free. But I always think that, but the transponder... Well, how close do you really need to be? Though? I know, that is true. And eventually you would think you would have found it. Right. By the way, in the novel, Llewellyn is 36 and Carla Jean is 19 and they've been married for three years. So Hmm. make of that what you will. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, they changed it for the movie so we wouldn't have to talk about that. Yeah. Although noticeable age gap, it seems, right? She's supposed to be younger still. I think Kelly McDonald was 30 at the time. I don't know. Brolin was probably older than that, but not that kind of age sure cap. yeah and as you mentioned there is this humorous rapport between the two but there's also honesty and directness so much so that carla jean doesn't believe him he just straight up tells her oh it's oh, yeah. a bag full of money and she's like yeah okay that, that is sort of the llewellyn character though everything that he says is matter of fact llewellyn is a vietnam vet and though it's never actually put into words i feel like there is an unspoken belief that the money is a reward for his sacrifice overseas. Mm -hmm. There is sort of this mentality of 
I deserve this, I'm taking it. One of the things that's definitely different from a simple plan is Llewellyn's only real guilt comes in the form of, I got to go back and give that guy water. I know. It's nothing to do with the money. Right. And he doesn't have to really kill anyone to keep it a secret or anything like that. It's it's a completely different vibe after the money's found. Yeah. It is weird about his character because he mostly makes sound decisions. He knows this is not a good decision. Right. But Well, he also goes back, and he knows that's not a good decision either. Well, that's what I mean. Oh, the, I like, meant take the money. No, no. It's also not a good decision. Well, true, but once he's done that, okay, going back is a disaster of a decision. It is, but I think that he just can't right. live with himself. Knowing that he just left this dude there? But yeah. He has to know that that guy, there's like a great chance that that guy is dead yeah. by now. Yeah. And I think he does. But yeah, you're right. He just can't let it go. Llewellyn, racked with guilt, decides to return with water, something he knows is a fool's errand. He even tells Carla Jean he's fixing to do something dumber than hell, mm-hmm. but he's got to do it anyway. And when he gets back to the scene, of course the man is dead, as Llewellyn knew he would be, and of course it's his compassion that is his undoing. It's the difference between disappearing in the wind and putting yourself on the radar. Two men in a truck arrive. The way that it's shot is really cool because he's looking up at that ridge. Right. There's shadows against the blue sky behind them on the ridge. And when he turns back after he hears, I guess, what is a radio, it's genuinely disconcerting. When right. you see the other people, you're like, oh, fuck. I know. Here we go. It's over. And then when the other guy's truck roars to life and starts driving down oh, I know. to pursue, then there's a chase. There's distant thunder and lightning in the sky. It's definitely near dawn now. Llewellyn escapes in a river and is followed by the cartel enforcer's dog, which Llewellyn manages to shoot and kill in a pretty dramatic moment where he's trying to load the gun. and Totally. Just at the last second. Surprising escape plan here. Obviously, it just works out that he's able to jump in the water and the current gets him away from his pursuers pretty quickly. Josh Brolin, in real life, broke his shoulder right before filming, which ends up being convenient because Llewellyn is shot in the shoulder here early on. Mm -hmm. So he's able to sell that injury. Yeah, I think that with that much money in 1980, which by 42 years later would probably be probably over $5 million. I don't even know. Would it be more than double at this point with inflation? Probably. Crazy. The plan is take the money and run immediately. Just get out of the area. You have this money now. Right. You didn't have much going on. You might have been happy, but you live in a trailer. It's not like you, you're attached to much here. Right, Just right. Just yeah. go immediately. That way, because there's no technology in 1980 that's going to be able to track it from long distances. Exactly. But he goes back, which means people are aware there's a guy who took the money. Uh-huh. They don't have to look for ultimate ombre or whatever he called the guy, <laughs> the last guy man standing. Right. They don't have to look for that guy. They know some other guy is running away with his money. How much? 69, see? And the gas. Y'all getting any rain up here, way? What way would that be? I seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo? I didn't mean nothing by it. Didn't mean nothing. Just passing the time. If 
you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else I can do for you. Will there be something else? I don't know. Will there? <clears throat> Is something wrong? With what? With anything. Is that what you're asking me? Is there something wrong with anything? Will there be anything else? You already asked me that. Well, I need to see about closing now. See about closing? Yes, sir. What time do you close? Now. We close now. Now is not a time. What time do you close? Generally around dark. At dark. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Sir? I said, you don't know what you're talking about. What time do you go to bed? Sir? You're a bit deaf, aren't you? I said, what time do you go to bed? Oh. Somewhere around 9.30. I'd say around 9.30. I could come back then. Why would you be coming back? We'll be closed. Yeah, you said that. Well, I got to close now. You live in that house all back. Yes, I do. You lived here all your life? This is my wife's father's place, uh, originally. You married into it? We lived in Temple, Texas for many years. Raised a family there in Temple. We come out here about four years ago. You married into it? <laughs> That's the way you want to put it. I don't have some way to put it. That's the way it is. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. All right. Heads in. Well done. Don't put it in your pocket, sir. Don't put it in your pocket, it's your lucky quarter. Where do you want me to put it? Anywhere not in your pocket. What will get mixed in with the others and become just a coin. Which it is. Meanwhile, at a gas station, we're presented with a window into Chigurh's warped way of thinking. He ultimately spares the life of the owner who correctly guesses the result of Chigurh's coin toss. 
So before we talk about this scene, this yeah. is one of the examples. Definitely some anachronistic stuff in the gas station. You can see food logos on some of the products. Right, right. Definitely modern day, at least for 2007, not 1980. Uh-huh. But whatever. We're okay with it. Sugar is a character who refuses to acknowledge his own agency. He hands responsibility over to the fate of a coin toss and chooses to ignore the obvious reality that he does not, in fact, have to do the things he does. He instead pretends that it's something else making the decision for him, which ultimately sort of makes him a coward in a weird way. But I guess it's just his weird, warped mind that has come up with this. I know. He is obsessed with fate and destiny. He's always talking about the rule you followed that led you here <laughs> in a mocking way because it's yeah. leading you to your death. Yeah, and really at the end of it all, he's just another cog in the wheel of the much larger theme in the film of destiny versus self-determination. But Chigurh's passing of the buck over to supposed chance is an exercise in bad faith and really just bullshit. At the end of the day, he still serves the almighty dollar. Mm-hmm. The quarter he flips could almost be seen as symbolic of this in yeah. a way. And it also matches the coin-shaped holes left in the heads of his victims from the captive bolt pistol. But having said all that, it doesn't mean that his interactions that he has with people aren't terrifying because they most Definitely. certainly are. I know. And this is some of the brilliance of the Coen brothers too, just being able to create these scenes and create such tension. But he is just frightening. He does have that death feel to him where he's kind of going through life, stalking his prey and killing relentlessly. Well, on a purely symbolic level, he is death. Yeah. He's not really a man. But he is in the movie. But if you were to like take it to that higher level. One of the things that adds to the movie is like trying to figure out this guy's motivations the whole time. Because Well, that's what I mean when he ultimately answers to the almighty dollar. Right. He is hired to do this job, and so that's why he does it. But then he goes rogue from that, too. Well, he has his own rules for doing it. Right. I do love this guy, though, working at the gas station. Oh, yeah. The supporting characters that they fill this movie with, the people working at the various places, the hotels, the motels, the gas station, etc., all very great and real. And you talked about the Coen brothers making some tweaks that make it theirs, and I think this is one of them, too, because... I think I read that this scene is supposed to be more like at night and the fact that it's the middle of the day and the guy is like, oh yeah, I think I got to close now. I got to go to bed. (laughs) Makes that scene even better. It's the longest five minutes of this poor man's life. Yeah. Because the threat is never explicit. It's never said, call this coin toss for your life. Right. Get this right and you live, get this wrong and you die. That's never said, but... At some point, looking into the darkness of Sugar's eyes, he just understands what's happening. Uh huh. What do I stand to lose? Everything. Llewellyn finally makes it back home and sends Carla Jean off to her mother's house in Odessa because he knows it's just a matter of time before someone tracks him down, especially now that he had to leave his truck at that fucking scene. Sugar is taken out to the scene of the drug deal in the desert gets the information he needs from Llewellyn's truck, is given a transponder that will help locate the case of money when it's in close range, and then kills the men who brought him out there. Mm -hmm. 
this is a larger question that is never fully answered in the film, and you have to piece it together, I guess. Who exactly hired Sugar? What exactly is going on with him? Where did he come from? Because I don't even think Stephen Root hired him. Okay, yeah. Because that would conflict with how I think you're supposed to take the ending, at least based on the book. I'm sort of mixing the book into the movie. But I don't want to get into the whole ending right now. But I don't think it's ever fully clear. I think there's supposed to be someone even higher up. How did they even fucking call this guy? <laughs> Obviously, I understand that he has a career in this type of field. He just sits in a room by a phone and waits. It just seems like he's constantly driving around killing people. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to reel him in, but if you get him, he's good. That's right. Wouldn't think a card burn like that. Yes, sir. We should have brought weenies. That look like about a 77 Ford to you, Wendell. It could be. I'd say it is, not a doubt in my mind. The old boy shot by the highway. Yes, sir. His vehicle. Man killed the Mars deputy, took his car, killed that man on the highway, swapped for his car, and now here it is, and he swapped again for God knows what. That's very linear, Sheriff. Age will flatten the man, Wendell. Yes, sir. And there's this other. Now, you ride Winston. You sure? Oh, I'm more than sure. Anything happens to Loretta's horse out here, I can tell you right now, I don't want to be the party that was aboard. It's the same tire tread coming back as going, made about the same time, too. You can see the sights real clear. Somebody's probably the inspection plate off the door on this one. I know this truck. Belongs to a fella named Moss. Llewellyn Moss? That's the boy. You figure him for a dope runner? No, I don't know. <laughs> I kindly doubt it. Okay, corrals just yonder. Oh, hell's bells. They even shot the dog. Well, this is just a deal gone wrong, isn't it? Yeah. Appears to have been a glitch or two. What calibers you got there, Sheriff? Nine millimeter. Couple 45 ACPs. Somebody unloaded on that thing with a shotgun. How come you reckon the coyote ain't been at him? I don't know. Supposedly, a coyote won't eat a Mexican. These boys appear to be managerial. I think we're looking at more than one fracas. Execution here, Wild West over there. That Mexican brown dope. Oh, these boys is all swole up. So this was earlier, getting set to trade. And whoa, differences. You know, might not even have been no money. That's possible. But you don't believe it. <laughs> no, probably I don't. Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. Sheriff Bell and another officer, Wendell, played by the aforementioned Garrett Dillon Hunt, examine the crime scene on horseback. Bell, always pursuing, always one step behind in the film. That's right. Almost painful. As suspected, Chigurh has been hired to recover the money, In the morning, he arrives to search Llewellyn's home. 
where he uses his bolt pistol to blow the lock out of the door. You kind of get a little bit of a sense of how he operates. He picks up the telephone bill. He then later uses the bill to call the number that's most often called, which ends up being Carla Jean's mother. That's true. He doesn't have to do too much detective work, really. That ultimately doesn't go anywhere other than it tells him where Carla Jean will be later. Right. Because it's not where Llewellyn or the money is at this point. He takes a jug of milk out of the refrigerator and drinks from it. This is unnerving in and of itself. Uh Uh-huh. Milk is gross. (laughs) I I don't really know adults who drink milk. I agree. There's also something that makes it a million times worse in like the hot Texas heat. I mean, milk is not (laughs) thirst-quenching. Milk was a bad decision. (laughs) Well, I'm lactose intolerant, so I'm a little bit biased, I guess. The reflection of himself in the television is something the Coens pulled directly from the novel and then is later mirrored by Sheriff Bell when he's tracking Sugar and ends up in the same situation. Again, the way that he's framed, and he doesn't even quite seem human in that reflection. True. Part of it's the hairstyle. Well, yeah. His head look weird, but... <laughs> no do, human being would attempt this hairstyle. <laughs> you do get that horror monster vibe from totally. those angles and pictures of him, those images. I love the interaction between Sugar and the woman at the trailer park office. <laughs> He's almost taken aback. He's met his match with this lady. In a weird way, I think this is the first time they tease him being met with resistance so that we can get a little window into the end later right with carla jean and his reaction is always hilarious he just doesn't know how to react when people don't react the way he wants yeah he's always got this look on his face he's just dumbfounded by it and it does seem like he's about to kill her and then he hears the toilet flush in the other room which means there's another person and then it becomes too much i am a little surprised I don't know, even if it is another person, they seem like they're in a pretty isolated scenario and it seems like he would be able to kill them with ease. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He never kills just to do it. True. And he doesn't kill based really on emotion. So even if he is pissed at her, he realizes essentially there's no reason and it's not going to do anything. So let's just move on to the next thing. All of a sudden, he's just like lining people up to do the coin toss. (laughs) You have to wait. Yeah. Llewellyn bids farewell to his bride on a Greyhound bus, vowing that he will return to her, but that's one promise he's unable to keep. Yeah, Llewellyn makes a few mistakes. I know that he wants to keep her safe, but once they have his truck, it does seem like you do start doing some of this. Well, they can find out a lot about me and what my extended family would be. So I, what, I, you're blaming him now for her? I just don't know if sending her to the mom's is the best choice it seems like she could go hide somewhere with some of the money and i guess he probably thinks that they're not gonna do that and i think typically they probably wouldn't bother with it until it becomes a bigger thing and it just keeps going and going and going that's true but at this point i guess it is possible he's underestimating what's coming he doesn't quite know exactly what's going to happen well that's true still one step behind bell and wendell arrive at llewellyn's trailer having just missed sugar Bell observes the blown-out lock. He puts this together with everything else eventually. They realize that the guy who murdered the deputy sheriff at the beginning is the guy switching out cars and all this different shit. The milk is a giveaway that they were close, but not close enough. And both of them do seem to at least have some sense of what's happening. Because 
initially it's unclear if they're just looking for Llewellyn, but pretty early on they know they're looking for someone who's looking for Llewellyn. Right. They get what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And actually fear for Llewellyn. Right, yeah. Meanwhile, Llewellyn takes a cab to Del Rio and gets a room at the Regal Motor Motel. The surly woman at the front desk is played by Margaret Bowman, who was the infamous waitress in Hell or High Water. Mm, That's right. The rattlesnake. (laughs) She also appears briefly in The Hot Spot. She must have just been like a local Texas actress down in that area. In cool movies. Yeah. Only legendary movies. By the way, off the chart production value of these locations that they start going to. Yeah. The hotels, particularly the one where him and Sugar have their showdown. That place is awesome. But even like these little roadside type joints. Yeah, they definitely found places that do fit for 1980. It sort of reminds me of some of the stuff we talked about with the used 80s. Uh But you're shooting a film in 2007 that needs to look like... It's in 1980, so you have to find these places that have just been not remodeled and updated. I know. (laughs) Probably they're changing the rooms around to make them look older with more TVs and stuff, but still. I'm saying that as if I know for a fact that the exterior of these motels is the same as the interior of the rooms. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't look into this movie that much. My God. Llewellyn hides the briefcase with the money in his room's air duct. As I said before, it's... Ultimately, a quiet, brooding performance from Brolin, minimal dialogue, which can be intimidating for an actor. A lot of actors, I think, rely on the dialogue to help them convey the character, which is common sense, of course. But there's long stretches of this film where there's a lot more emphasis on the mechanics and procedure in terms of what he's doing for the story. He's sawing this, he's building that, he's putting the money here, he's taking apart this, he's sewing himself back up, whatever is happening. It's a lot of emphasis on doing stuff. Right. I think he does quickly point out to us, the viewer, that he's no easy mark for Shakur. He's going to put up a, a little bit of a good fight here. Yeah, that's the one thing that you end up taking away. He ends up being a tougher test than would be expected by any of the yeah. the hardened criminals involved. A lot of the time, we as the audience are unsure of exactly what Llewellyn is doing, especially the first time you see this movie. Yeah. Because some of the ideas he comes up with, (laughs) you're not even expecting. It would have never occurred to me to pull the move he pulls at this motel with the air duct and all that stuff. But it's a genius move. It's sweet. Llewellyn is constantly watching his back, believing himself a hunted man. He gets spooked when he sees a new truck waiting at the Regal, so he checks in at a different motel. I think it's pretty safe to assume that the truck he sees is the Mexican men. Yeah. But never confirmed, but that seems likely. He then buys a shotgun, which he modifies, and a tent so he can use the poles. He returns to the Regal in daylight and rents another room. He uses a room map to determine which room he pushed the money case toward in the air vent, baffling the woman behind the counter. It's got two double beds. <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the film. <laughs> she just doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. It's mind your own business, lady. Okay, so let's assume that the Mexican men have been there since that night in the truck. Mm-hmm. Meaning, as we find out later, they have the transponder. The transponder has led them to this motel. 
Now, the technology back then is not quite as precise as it would be now. So, right. like, it's hard to tell for sure if they're able to really pinpoint exactly which room and exactly. Well, this whole part is always hard for me to understand in terms of when Llewellyn decides that he can go anywhere and he's just driving off into whatever town in Texas. Right. That they're able to track him. Well, I think that Del Rio is close to where the story starts. Okay. I don't think he's gone that far yet. Gotcha. That's the only explanation to how right. this all happens. If you're watching it when they start showing Shakur driving, you're just like, oh, okay, he's just driving through Texas and he happens to find <laughs> Llewellyn. Right, yeah. That's why I think it just has to be yeah. close to where it all started. Probably the closest town to okay. where it started initially. Right. But what I was saying was, okay, so the Mexicans are there. However they found him, they found him. They have the transponder. He disappears for 18 hours? I don't know. He goes and sleeps at another motel. He goes off that day to buy the gun and all this other shit. How have they not found the money? I don't know. Not they the best. They can't guess that it's an in, in the air duct? Because obviously they go into his room. Right. Not the best henchman. They know it's in that room because the fucking <laughs> transponder is beeping. And that's where Sugar ends up killing them. These are low-level employees. I guess. They're, they're somehow really, they couldn't yeah. think of this air duct as the place where it might be. They're just like, let's just show up and wait for this motherfucker to get here. It turns out to be a combination of patience and luck that leads Shigur to Llewellyn. Driving around with the transponder turned on, Shigur finally gets a hit as he drives through Del Rio, leading him directly to the Regal. As Llewellyn works to pull the cash over to his second room using a big pole he made out of the tent poles and... The, the hangers. hangers, several hangers taped together. Right. One would just bend because yeah, the yeah. weight of the money. As Llewellyn works to pull the cash over to his second room, Sugar checks into the motel himself, I think, because he looks at the room map. <laughs> yeah, he does go into his own room, yeah. He right. turns the light on and yes. acts weird in that room for a minute, <laughs> and then he's like, what the am wall. I doing? Sugar yeah. takes his boots off. He has a big thing about getting blood on his boots. That's a recurring thing. It also helps not make any noise as he's approaching the door. That's originally why I thought he did it. But then the, the blood thing comes up several times. Yeah. I think they just want to plant that seed at right. the end to make sure everyone knows what he's doing at the end. Even though I don't think I picked up on it that it was a recurring thing and I still recognize what he was doing yeah, at the same. end. Same. Yeah. But okay. The shotgun suppressor he has, though cool. Impractical? Did not exist. <laughs> And it did not exist even when 2007 rolled around. Right. The Coens just invented it. And then I think later in maybe 2014 or something, something came along that's similar to this maybe. But the Coens were just like, all right, well, he has this big thing on his shotgun that suppresses the sound, but it's not a real thing. Right. Shigur breaks into Llewellyn's original motel room the same way he did with the trailer, and then he kills three Mexican men waiting in there to ambush Llewellyn. In the adjacent second room, Llewellyn hears the gunfire but manages to retrieve the money and escape before Shigur opens the duct and figures out what has happened based on the tracks and the dust in the right. event. The way that it's done in the movie, he kills those guys pretty quick, takes his socks off, <laughs> throws them into the bathroom with the two dead guys, oh, yeah. checks the drawers, checks under the bed, sits there for a minute, looks up at the vent and figures it out. As sort of simultaneously as we are, it's sort of disorienting the first time you see it. Well, let me just say. Yeah. He does all of that in about three minutes. I don't know. Is that enough time for Llewellyn to run out of his room with the money, 
go God knows where and then get that ride hitchhiking. It seems like once Sugar sees that, he would be able to figure out which room. I know, and then close ground pretty quickly. Or even just run out of the room and be like, where's this dude running to? (laughs) Like he's coming out of another room somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I get that you have to sort of ignore stuff like that to make it all fit, but having Llewellyn overhear the gunfire means that not that much time has passed by the time he pulls that money out. I don't know. No, and then I'm we see you. he didn't take any vehicle because he didn't have one. Yeah. I don't know. It's almost like it should have been done in a way where he's away from the scene and here's the shot already with money in hand. Yeah, that Something would have like been that. better. Yeah. But this is the first time the audience is fully aware of what's happening because we've only been shown Shigur. We don't realize that like there's other people now looking for him too. Right. So now everything gets very confusing. And it's also kind of confusing that Shakur is killing all these other people that seems like they would be on the same side as him. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that definitely infuriates him is when you bring in other people to do the job oh, he's yeah. supposed to be doing. He's outspoken about that. <laughs> Another operative named Carson Wells, played by Woody Harrelson, is hired to presumably rein in Shakur as the number of corpses keeps rising. That's all that's really discussed in this meeting, correct? Uh. They don't really talk about the money. Well, invalidate his parking. They do say, oh, we're out $2 million and they're out product or whatever. It's basically, we've got a loose cannon here. You know Anton Chigur by sight, is that correct? Yes, sir, I know him every which way. When did you last see him? Uh, November 28th last year. I'm pretty sure of the date. Did I ask you to sit? No, sir, but you struck me as a man who wouldn't want to waste a chair. I remember dates, names, numbers. I saw him November the 28th. Got a loose cannon here. Around a bunch of money, and the other party is out his product. Yes, sir. This account will give up $1,200 in any 24-hour period. That's up from 1000 if your expenses run higher, I hope you'll trust us for it. Okay. Just how well do you know Shigur? What do you want to know? I just want to know your opinion of him in general. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? He's bad enough you called me. Now, he's a psychopathic killer, but so what? There's plenty of them around. Killed three men in Del Rio Motel yesterday and two others in that colossal goat fuck out in the desert. We can stop that. Seem pretty sure of yourself. You've led something of a charmed life, haven't you, Mr. Wells? In all honesty, I can't say the charm has had a whole lot to do with it. I was wondering... Yes? Could you validate my parking ticket? An attempted humor, I suppose. No, I'm sorry. You know, I uh, counted the floors of this building from the street. And? There's one missing. We'll look into it. Stephen Root is credited as the man who hires Wells. That's his character, the man who hires Wells. So again, who hired Shigur? Who does he work for or answer to? Never really clear, but I think that 
his orders come from the top of this organization, uh-huh. whatever this is. Carson Wells mentions in this conversation that one floor in the building seems to be missing. This may refer to the fact that most buildings do not have a 13th floor, which many consider an unlucky number. Building owners often rename the floor 14 or give the floor some other use and rename it with a letter. But the novel implies that the floor in question, the 17th, is not listed in the building's directory for security purposes and thus is missing, quote-unquote, it is possible they use this missing floor to process their drugs. Okay. I guess that's just a way for the Coens to yeah. put that information in there somewhere. Llewellyn hitchhikes to a hotel in the border town Eagle Pass and discovers the tracking device tucked inside the cache. It's just like, idiot. Well, it's sort of similar to when he just can't sleep and goes, all right. Yeah. And then he goes and takes the water back. This time he goes, there's no way. Right. How would they find him? Right. Something's up. And he figures it out now. But it's too late. Yeah. Shigur has already tracked him there. I guess that sort of answers my question about how quickly Shigur leaves that motel, knowing that the money's gone. Immediately. Pretty quick. He yeah. probably followed the cab there, or uh-huh. the guy who drove him there, maybe. This is all set up very cool. This is like I the know. perfect action suspense set piece here. It's amazing. Once it actually gets to the shootout part, it was one of the coolest, most memorable action sequence moments that I just can remember watching. When he's driving that truck and you are hearing the noise from the gun. Yeah. Like hit the that suppressed window. Noise. Yeah. Like, it's like, yeah. Like a slingshot. It's almost. like incredible. There's a light in the hall and Llewellyn hears noise downstairs. It's one of these, it's almost like a bed and breakfast style hotel. It's not, but the doors are thin. It's not like a modern hotel. It almost seems more like an apartment building than a hotel. You can hear the sound downstairs. He hears something. He had already told the clerk to call him if anybody checks in. He doesn't get a call, but he hears something downstairs. So then he calls the desk. No one answers. So then he's sitting there waiting. He grabs his shotgun, pointed towards the door. From the light in the hall, he can see that someone is walking down the hall and stops in front of his door. And I actually like this part, too, how you get the build early on where he's using his little thingy to shoot out the door lock. Right. And how that actually ends up playing in here. Yeah. He moves away from the door as if he's walking away and then turns the light off in the hallway. Probably unscrews a light bulb or something. So now we're in darkness. The lock is blown out and hits Llewellyn in the chest, sort of startling him because he's right. like, what the fuck just happened? Llewellyn fires his shotgun at the door and then immediately turns and chucks the case out of the second story window, jumps out after it, landing hard on the pavement. He then goes back inside the hotel. Originally, I thought that he was going to try to ambush him coming down the stairs, but instead he's going to run out the back door. Uh-huh. The way that the Coens set up some of these scenes and what you see and how they choose to show you the story is really cool. Cause oh, absolutely. When he comes back in and you just see the milk right. from the saucer that the cat was drinking out of is all askew. The milk's everywhere. Yep. You don't even need to see the body or anything. Exactly. Like, okay, yeah. well, this dude's That guy's dead. dead. Yeah. The pursuit and firefight spills onto the streets, killing a bystander in a truck with whom Llewellyn attempted to escape. Well, and he gets shot again. Yeah, both Llewellyn and Shigur end up wounded and bloody, but ultimately still breathing. There feels like there's a moment 
after he hides behind that car after the truck crashes on the other side of the street and Shigeru doesn't know that he's gotten out of that truck so right. he walks over to that truck first and he's hiding behind the, the car yeah, and then he the gets the jump on him. on him yeah and he shoots him and that's when he hits him in the leg and Shigeru kind of retreats down that dark alley and he lost his gun too it feels like he has a moment to just pursue Shigeru and kill him. Right. But he doesn't take it because it's so dark and he's not sure what he would be running into. Right. It's ultimately the smart play, but it's wrong. But he can't know that. He wouldn't know that. Uh-huh. He doesn't know if he has another gun. He can't see what he's running into because it's that dark down that alley. But yeah, that was his moment to finish it. Yep. Just within this scene... There's a continued shifting of identities between Hunter and Hunted. All of the principals within the film play both roles, including Sheriff Bell and, and Carson Wells. Llewellyn crosses the border into Mexico on foot, by the way, a real rarity in Coen Brothers films. This is the only time outside of their segment of Je t'aime Paris that a character is not in the United States. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and tosses the money over the side of of a bridge hiding it in the tall grass along the Rio Grande. Sort of a weird move, but I guess at this point he doesn't know what else to do and he's got to get some medical help here or something. If he carries it across the border as he's fucking dying, basically, he's not going to have that money. Right. It'll be gone. So this is a Hail Mary. Uh Hopefully it'll still be there. On the bridge, he buys that guy's coat for $500. (laughs) He's bleeding very badly. Definitely. He ends up laying down on the ground outside of some building. When Llewellyn is laying there, after crossing the Mexican border, a mariachi group Mm. starts singing to him, and what they say translated into English is, you wanted to fly without wings, you wanted to touch the sky, you wanted too much wealth, you wanted to play with fire. Mm. So fitting for the movie, but also an obnoxious way to be woken up. (laughs) (laughs) Llewellyn pays the band members to take him to a hospital, Back on the other side of the border, in the morning, Shigur has this elaborate plan to take supplies from a pharmacy. But he has to create a distraction first. Yeah, he has to get some heavy-duty painkillers and all kinds of different shit by blowing up a car (laughs) so that everyone will be distracted. And then he goes back to a motel. Doesn't seem like the Eagle Pass motel that Llewellyn was at. Seems like a different place. Agreed. And proceed to remove the bullets or the shrapnel from the shotgun blast in his leg in a pretty gross scene. And oh, yeah. Then sew up his wound and do Even the whole thing. When he's painfully removing his boot and blood spills out, <laughs> yeah. it's rough. Buenos I'm guessing this isn't the future you had pictured for yourself when you first clapped eyes on that money. Don't worry, I'm not the man who's after you. I know that. I've seen him. You've seen him? Man, you're not dead. What's this guy supposed to be, the ultimate badass? I don't think that's how I'd describe him. How would you describe him? I guess I'd say he doesn't have a sense of humor. His name's Shiger. Sugar? Shiger, Anton Shiger. You know how he found you? Yeah, I know how he found me. It's called a transponder. I know what it's called. He won't find me again. 
Well, not that way. Not anyway. Took me about three hours. Yeah, well, I've been mobile. No, you don't understand. What do you do? I'm retired. What did you do? Welder. Settling, MIG, TIG? Any of it. If it can be welded, I can weld it. Cast iron? Yeah. I don't mean braze. I didn't say braze. Pop metal. What did I say? Were you in NAM? Yeah, I was in NAM. Hmm. So was I. So what does that make me, your buddy? Look, you gotta give me this money. I got no other reason to protect you. It's too late. I spent it. About a million and a half on whores and whiskey and the rest of it just sort of blew it in. How do you know he's not on his way to Odessa? Why would he go to Odessa? Kill your wife. Maybe he's the one who needs to be worried about me. He isn't. Yeah. You're not cut out for this. You're just a guy who happened to find those vehicles. I'm across the river at the Hotel Eagle. Carson Wells. Call me when you've had enough. I can even let you keep a little of the money. If I was into cutting deals, why wouldn't I just deal with this guy, Sugar? Oh, no, no, you don't understand. You can't make a deal with him. Even if you gave him the money back, he'd still kill you just for inconveniencing him. He's a peculiar man. You might even say he has principles, principles that transcend money or drugs or anything like that. He's not like you. <laughs> yeah, he's not even like me. No, he don't talk as much as you. I give him points for that. Carson Wells arrives at Llewellyn's hospital bedside in Mexico. How the fuck does he find him? He fills Llewellyn in on who exactly is hunting him and offers protection in exchange for the money. It's an offer Llewellyn rejects. Meanwhile, Bell meets with Carla Jean in Odessa, but she's essentially in the dark. He vows to protect Llewellyn if Llewellyn comes to him. So how does Wells find Llewellyn? It's well, hard to say. My guess is that more days have gone by, that this is not the next morning anymore. Yeah, yeah. And that news of what has happened at this hotel has hit the airwaves. Mm-hmm. And so they've tracked the situation from Del Rio, where the shootout was with the Mexicans in the motel, right. to here. And then, I guess, just good tracking work. He figures out yeah. where he probably went. The thing that always blows my mind is how Wells just finds the money but leaves it where it is, which seems bizarre. I, I don't really know the explanation for that. I, I guess, guess that's not his job, going back to his conversation with Stephen Root. True. It was more about Shigur and not the money, and then the money will come later, I guess. Yeah. It's always wild with Wells that he finds Llewellyn, what feels like relatively easily, finds the money, and then... Not much of a fucking showing from him (laughs) when it comes to meeting his demise. On his way back across the border, Wells spots the briefcase in the grass along the river, but does not collect it. And he's actually staying in the same hotel that Llewellyn had been staying in before. 
However, he's made a mistake, and Shigur's got the drop on him, sneaking up on him in the hotel on the way back to his room. They go to Wells' room, where he attempts to barter for his life, but Shigur kills him anyway. Shigur never interested in whatever Wells has got to offer. The audacity of Shigur returning to the same hotel where that shootout had just happened and is he something that someone. <laughs> comes up later in Bell and another sheriff's conversation about not understanding these right. modern criminals. It's cool the way that it, it happens, but when you meet the Wells character, he's basically almost dismissive of Shigur. He's like, yeah, he's crazy, but who gives a shit? And then so easily outdone. Yeah. I guess he figured that Shigur would not come back to the same hotel. That's probably why he was staying there. Yeah. But yeah, we find out a little bit more about who Wells was later. I think he probably did think he was more of a badass than Shigur, but it didn't play out that way. No. It's all about luck, which is a big thing right. with Shigur in the yeah. first place. <laughs> you don't have to do this. I'm a day trader. I could just go home. You could. Make it worth your while. Take you to an ATM. There's 14 grand in it. Everybody just walks away. An ATM? I know where the satchel is. If you knew you would have it with you. I could find it from the riverbank. I know where it is. I know something better. What's that? I know what it's going to be. Where's that? It will be brought to me and placed at my feet. You don't know to a certainty. In 20 minutes, it could be here. I do know to a certainty. And you know what's going to happen now, Carson? You should admit your situation. There will be more dignity in it. You go to hell. Mm -hmm. All right. Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. You, you could have the money, Anton. Not in the sense that you mean. 
to come see me. Who is this? You know who it is. You need to talk to me. I don't need to talk to you. I think you do. Do you know where I'm going? Why would I care where you're going? I know where you are. Yeah, where am I? You're in the hospital across the river, but that's not where I'm going. Do you know where I'm going? Yeah, I know where you're going. All right. You know she won't be there. It doesn't make any difference where she is. So what are you going up there for? You know how this is gonna turn out, don't you? Nope. I think you do. So this is what I'll offer. You bring me the money and I'll let her go. Otherwise, she's accountable. The same as you. That's the best deal you're gonna get. I won't tell you you can save yourself, because you can't. Yeah, I'm gonna bring you something, all right? I decided to make you a special project of mine. You ain't gonna have to come look for me at all. Llewellyn calls the room intending to bargain with Wells, but it's Shiger who answers the phone. Shiger offers Llewellyn one deal and one deal only. Bring me the money and I won't kill Carla Jean. You can't save yourself, but you can save her. If Llewellyn won't bring him the money, Shiger vows to kill her. Of course, it's not only probable, but I would say almost definite that Sugar wouldn't believe Wells. Right. But Wells did tell him that he could have him the money in 20 minutes, and Sugar was not even remotely interested no. in this, because it ends up not really being about just collecting the money now, because he has this weird... I would say he's not interested in the money at all anymore. Well, he is. He is till the very end. Okay, know? yeah. If you pay attention to what you're, I think you're supposed to gather from the end of the film, but I guess it goes back to what you think Stephen Root's involvement is, because if you view him as the highest level of what's going on, I don't. Then it's really not about the money, but it's about his own morality, yeah. his own code of ethics that right. he has in his head, which is I will get the money back to my boss, but there's all these other factors <laughs> that can start playing in, and this yes. guy has now fucked with me, so he's dead. Right. And now my leverage over him is his wife, who I believe is in Odessa, and everyone seems to know, including Carson Wells. Everyone, <laughs> that part, you were right. I, I mean, know. Ultimately, everyone knew that's what yeah, she yeah. was. But since he says these words to Llewellyn, by his own code of ethics, that means he has to follow through yep. with it, even when it doesn't matter anymore. Right. Because he's- He gave his word. I knowed you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. <laughs> Another one of my favorite lines. <laughs> Let's be honest, Carla G. Not the biggest leap. There's some fucking guy with that haircut just <laughs> sitting quietly in your fucking yeah, bedroom. We all agree. I would assume he's crazy, yeah. too. Llewellyn doesn't budge. He's not going to be intimidated by Shigur. Maybe his spirits are buoyed by how well it went the previous encounter. Like, I almost got him. Yeah. I'm not going to be overmatched by this guy anymore i know he's coming he can be got it does feel that way now llewellyn retrieves the case from along the river and calls carla jean arranging to meet her at a motel in el paso where he intends to give her the money and put her on a plane sending her away from danger 
He probably should have sent her on a plane the first time, mm-hmm. but he underestimated what was coming. Let's talk for a minute about Carla Jean's mother, played by Beth Grant. Yeah, quite this, a bit of attitude. <laughs> her performance feels very Coen Brothers-y Definitely. compared to the rest of the movie. Yeah. A little bit of levity. Uh-huh. Even though what she's saying isn't funny, but it's more the way she says it. It's Obviously, insane accent. An old woman yeah. saying she's got the cancer is not funny, but just the way she's her doing delivery. It. Yeah. Five years ago, I know I said no, <laughs> no and, and good. Sugar <laughs> is fucking pissed. Not only did they give the Mexicans a transponder, but they've hired Carson Wells. So he goes and murders the man who hired Wells. <laughs> yeah. Unclear if he kills the accountant. I would say probably not. I would assume that guy's smart enough to say no. Right. When he asks, I know. Depends. Did you see me? And he gives that like weird smirk. (laughs) Yeah, that's him being cute and clever. (laughs) It's hard to tell sometimes why some people get the coin flip, some people get automatically killed, and some people he doesn't give anything. He doesn't kill or give the coin flip. I think that's part of it. Got his rules, and he plays by his rules, but he also makes up his rules. Carla Jean calls Bell and tells him where they're going to be, while her complaining mother unwittingly reveals Moss's location to a group of so Mexican stupid. men who had been following them. Yeah. Llewellyn arrives at the Desert Sands Motel in El Paso. There is a woman by the pool who is DTF immediately. <laughs> Don't really know what her deal is. Yeah, yeah, just hanging out by the pool. Hey, Mr. Sportin' Goods, you a sport? <laughs> yeah. I got beers in my room. It is weird. Nice to meet you, lady. <laughs> they leave it in a way where you're not 100% sure if Llewellyn is going to have some beers. Yeah. Not going for it. I don't know. Well, I always took it that they kind of get the drop on him a little bit because he's in a stage of vulnerability. It's possible. Whether it's just he's had a couple beers with her and he's he's not at his sharp normal self we don't know because it's very consciously not shown exactly one of the people i feel the worst for in the entire film is the chicken coop guy (laughs) who helps shigur when he's broken down on the side of the road and the guy just seems like a nice guy totally not only is he helping him by trying to jump his truck when shigur starts asking him all these bizarre questions he's trying to help him with answers right Where's the nearest airport? And he goes, well... Airstrip or airport? Airstrip or airport. <laughs> Depends where you're going. Where are you thinking about going? He's like, I don't know. Oh, just light now for the territories. I've been there, brother. <laughs> just like a folksy guy. Yep. And then all of a sudden he's like, can you take the chicken coops out of there? And the guy's like, what? Yeah, and a great and cut to... Him hosing out the truck. Right. <laughs> yeah. A few casualties in this one. After everything, it happens so suddenly and off screen. I know. And it is kind of a gut punch. I would say you're pretty invested in the Llewellyn character. Bell reaches the motel rendezvous at El Paso only to hear gunshots right before pulling into the parking lot. A pickup truck speeds away from the scene, presumably the Mexicans fleeing the scene who did the deed. Bell finds Llewellyn dead in his motel room as does a later arriving Carla Jean. You can't stop what's coming. Llewellyn's manner of death, off screen and at the hands of faceless, anonymous characters, 
sets the stage for a divisive finale to an expertly constructed film with some of the best set pieces in the Coen's Mm -hmm. filmography. Perhaps for the first time, it becomes clear to the audience that Llewellyn was not the protagonist. Rather, Sheriff Bell was all along. No Country for Old Men is the story of feeling overmatched and out of place, a man trying to understand things that he simply cannot. Chigurh is the physical embodiment of death and fate, and though Llewellyn proves to be a tough customer willing to put up a hell of a fight, he can't outrun fate any more than anyone else can. The fact that it's not Chigurh who ends up killing him is ultimately irrelevant in the bigger picture, because death is death. The means probably doesn't matter much once you're dead. That's right. (laughs) People expecting a more traditional hero versus villain showdown would possibly be a little disappointed, but this film is something else entirely. Good, evil, right, and wrong, they're all elusive in this particular landscape. Again, we return to destiny versus self-determination. That's what's being explored here more so than good versus evil. Buy you a cup of coffee before you drive home. No money in his room there? Couple hundred on his person. Those hombres would have taken the stash. I suppose so. Though they was leaving in a hurry. It's all the goddamn money, Ed Tom. Money and the drugs. It's just goddamn beyond everything. What's it mean? What's it leading to? You know, if you'd have told me 20 years ago, I'd see children walking the streets of our Texas towns with green hair, bones in their noses. I just flat out wouldn't have believed you. Signs and wonders. But I think once you quit hearing sir and ma'am, the rest is soon to follow. Oh, it's the tide. It's the dismal tide. It is not the one thing. Not the one thing. None of that explains your man, though. Uh Uh-uh. He's just a goddamn homicidal lunatic yet, Tom. I'm not sure he's a lunatic. Yeah, well, what would you call him? You know, sometimes I think he's pretty much a ghost. Oh, he's real, all right. Oh, yeah? Yeah, all of that over at the Eagle Hotel? <laughs> just beyond everything. Yeah. Got some hard bark on him. Well, that don't hardly say it. He shoots a desk clerk one day, walks right back in the next, and shoots a retired army colonel. Hard to believe. Just strolled right back into a crime scene. Now, who'd do such a thing? How do you defend against it? Well, good trip, Ed Tom. Sorry we couldn't help you, boy. Dazed, having just identified the body rather than Carla Jean doing it, Bell goes on a little coffee date with one of the local sheriff guys. That's right. And though you could definitely take their conversation as being slightly out of touch and focusing on things that don't really matter, like green hair and bones through noses. (laughs) It is clear they simply do not understand the world anymore. And that's the point they're trying to get across here. Sort of like if you and me were to go to Eaton Park. Kind of similar conversation. Talking about OnlyFans and TikTok. (laughs) It's from this guy talking to Bell that we find out that Carson Wells was a retired army general. And that's who he was. Worked his way into this shady business. Mm -hmm. By the way, don't really know where else to include this, but I'll point it out now. In the novel, Sheriff Bell says of the dope dealers, here a while back in San Antonio, they shot and killed a federal judge. 
Oh, yeah. Cormac McCarthy set the story in 1980. In 1979, federal judge John Howland Wood was shot and killed in San Antonio by Texas freelance contract killer Charles Harrelson, father of Woody Harrelson. I did read about this, too. Kind of a stunning piece of trivia. <laughs> How many movies have we done that factor in with Woody's dead? Yeah, really. JFK and I know. everything else crazy going on. That night... Before driving back home, Bell returns to the crime scene and observes the lock blown out. Chigurh appears to hide behind the door of the room, but when Bell hesitantly enters, gun drawn, he finds the motel room empty. He notices the vent cover has been removed. Another disorienting part the first time you see this movie, because what are you supposed to take from this? It seems like Chigurh is there and then not. Well, people have theorized about this a lot right the most popular theory seems to be that when bell visits the motel at night where llewellyn moss was killed he opens the door and he's clearly anticipating something inside which he doesn't understand Mm -hmm. this evil however Shigur must be in the room next door because moss and the mexican gang hired adjacent rooms beside each other it underlines the concept of Chigurh's coin toss, 50-50, just like door one or door two is a 50-50 situation. Mm. So Sheriff Bell chose the one in which Chigurh is not present. If one examines in which way Chigurh is hiding behind the door and the way the door opens, it is the other door. Gotcha, right. So it goes back to the same trick Yep. Llewellyn was trying to pull at the Regal. And so there's multiple rooms involved. There's always two hotel rooms. All kinds of different shit going on here. It's a funhouse mirror version of the coin toss. We're talking about fate again. Destiny. So what happened to the money? There's definitely more clarity in the novel. Shigur has the money and gives it back to the person he's hired by. Completes the job. But the film is dabbling in ambiguity which is typical of the Coens, think back to the money in Fargo, which is buried and never found. The Big Lebowski, was there ever money (laughs) or does it disappear? Does the Big Lebowski keep the money? We don't really know for sure. In O Brother, Where Art Thou, there isn't any treasure. Oh, yeah. It's a rumor. And in The Lady Killers, it all gets donated, which is as good as gone, I guess, in the mind of the people involved. And I know Sugar gets the money, gives it back to his employer... But it does seem like it's more important that the money is not a factor, really, for anyone. Yeah, I think it's a a good cinematic choice, and it, it not only fits in with the Coen brothers' M.O. and their right. oeuvre, but it lets the audience be reminded that the money is ultimately not the point. Exactly. But he either pulled it out of the vent that the Mexicans were too panicked and running off to be able to find Yeah. after they get into a gunfight, or... Let's be honest, if the Mexicans did take the money, they're not long for this world. Because <laughs> totally. Shakur is not going to stop. Right. Later, Bell visits his uncle Ellis, an ex-lawman, and tells him he plans to retire because he feels overmatched by the recent violence. Ellis, sort of a tough living situation. Literally me in 10 years. <laughs> Although I am allergic to cats. Oh, yeah, that's a true. a different animal, probably. Ellis is more present in the novel, but for the film, it's better this way, leaving it for the end. Because then I think you're supposed to be a little bit put off by how haunted and broken Ellis seems. 
contrast that with Bell, who's still seemingly in a decent place, but... Well, it's all going to go downhill from here. And back! How'd you know I was here? Who else would be driving up in your truck? You heard it? How's that? Did you hear my... You're having fun with me. I'd give you that idea. I seen one of the cats hurt it. How'd you know it was my truck? I deduced it when you walked in. How many of them things you got now? Cats? Oh, I don't know, several. Well, it depends on what you mean by got. Some of them are half wild, some of them are just outlaws. How you been, Ellis? You're looking at it. I got to say, you're looking older. I am older. Got a letter from your wife. She writes me pretty regular. Keeps me up on the family news. Didn't know there was any. Told me you're quitting. You want a cup? Appreciate it. How fresh is that coffee? I generally make a fresh pot every week, even if there's some left over. That man that shot you died in prison? Angola. Yeah. What'd you done? He'd have been released. Nothing. Wouldn't be no point in it. Kind of surprised to hear you say that. Well, all the time you spend trying to get back what's been took from you, more is going out the door. After a while, you just have to try to get a tourniquet on it. Your granddad never asked me to sign on as a deputy. Loretta tells me you're quitting. How come you're doing that? I don't know. I feel overmatched. I always figured when I got older, God would sort of come into my life somehow. And he didn't. And I don't blame him. If I was him, I'd have the same opinion of me that he does. You don't know what he thinks. I sent Uncle Max thumbbuster and badge over to the Rangers, put it in their museum. Did Daddy ever tell you how Uncle Mac come to his reward? Gunned down on his own porch over in Hudspeth County. Seven or eight of them come up there, all wanting this, wanting that. Uncle Mac went back in the house to get the shotgun. Well, there's a head of him. Shot him in his doorway. Ain't Ella come out and tried to stop the bleeding. Uncle Mac all the while trying to get that shotgun. They just sat there on their horses watching him die. After a while, one of them said something in Indian, and they turned and left out. 
Uncle Mac knew the score even if Aunt Ella didn't. Shot through the left lung. And that was that, as they say. When did he die? 1909. Uh, no, I mean, was it right away or in the night or when was it? I believe it was that night. She buried him the next morning, digging in that hard old caliche. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. Can't stop what's coming. They ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. This conversation is almost as illuminating as anything else in the movie, including right. the end, which I love. But this conversation, I think, opens Bell's eyes a little bit, which we were talking about before. Ellis tells Bell that the region has always been violent. A great uncle, a lawman, too was killed on his front porch in 1909, seemingly for no reason. It was kind of unclear what the reason even was. Well, I'm sure somebody had a reason. He even says, what you got ain't nothing new. And this is just my personal take on it. I think this information depresses Bell even more. Mm-hmm. It's just one of many. It doesn't comfort him in any way to know that this fucked up thing that he thinks he's experiencing is not unique to him. Because that's bad enough. Oh, oh yeah. the world's turning terrible now, and I'm getting old, and I don't fit. I got to say. the truth is, the world's always been terrible. Yeah. If other people can relate to me over something that's making me feel bad, that does not make me feel any better. <laughs> yeah, the response is, oh, you think your life sucks. Well, everyone's life sucks. It, Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Every scene with Tommy Lee Jones is so good. Right. This scene is awesome, even though I think Ellis is more the star of it, but- just any scene that he's in, I don't know. It always know. sticks with me. Well, I can remember when I read the book, after loving the movie, of course, and a friend of mine told me to read the book, and he just said, look, Bell's monologues is basically what the whole thing is. Yeah, yeah. There's way more of his narration and, and his viewpoint. Right. A lot more. I think he ends up being on screen the least of the three leads. Yeah. As mentioned, the title of the film is part of the first line from Yeats's poem, Sailing to Byzantium. The full line is, that is no country for old men. The poem is about an old man, and as he nears death, he wonders what it might be like in the afterlife. This theme is somewhat explored by the world of weary Sheriff Bell, who ponders what his life will be like after he leaves life as a lawman. I would even go one step further and say... That also plays in with the dreams at the end right. of the film and that whole thing. Time passes, and so does Carla Jean's mother, succumbing to the cancer. When Carla Jean returns from the funeral, she finds Shigur waiting in her bedroom per his threat to Llewellyn. Why the delay in time? Well, there could be any number of reasons. Yeah. We can only speculate. Okay. Maybe he waited for the mother to die because he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It could have been he had to find her. He wasn't sure where she was. Odessa. I know. That yeah. seems obvious. It seems like she's moved to Odessa to just be with her mother now. Right. But we don't know how much time has passed. True. It could be short. Yeah. Her mother's health situation was dire. He was physically needing some time to re- 
cover. That's true. There's that possibility. Maybe he did have to track down the Mexicans to get the money, and it wasn't in the vent. That's a possibility, too. We don't know. But whatever. He shows up. He's there. Again, like the spilled milk back at the hotel in Eagle Pass, the way that it's revealed with her looking across the room and there's an open window, and Mm -hmm. her just looking at it like, you know she didn't open this fucking window. Right. Carla Jean becomes the sole connection between the three leads. She's the only character that speaks to her husband, Sheriff Bell, and now Shigur. That is true. Carla Jean refuses Shigur's offer of a coin toss for her life, essentially telling Shigur that he cannot pass the blame to Luck. The choice is his. I like when he's mocking, you don't have to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone says the same thing. There's a darkly comedic, in a fucked up way, vibe with this. I love when she says, I knowed you was crazy when I saw you sitting there, (laughs) which is the funniest. (laughs) And then Shigur's baffled face when she won't do the coin toss. I know, frustrated. Yeah, I got here the same way the coin did, he says. Which, again, brings me back to how he equates things with money in a weird way. He is one and the same with money. You can take that line to read it in a, in a bigger way. Oh, uh, true. I knew this one done with. I ain't got the money. What little I had is long gone, and there's bills aplenty to pay it. I buried my mother today. Ain't paid for that, neither. I wouldn't worry about it. I need to sit down. You got no cause to hurt me. No. But I gave my word. You gave your word? To your husband. That don't make sense. You gave your word to my husband to kill me? Your husband had the opportunity to save you. Instead, he used you to try to save himself. You don't have to do this. People always say the same thing. What do they say? They say, you don't have to do this. You don't. Okay. This is the best I can do. Call it. I know she was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. Shigur is seen checking the bottom of his boots as he leaves her house 
and this is consistent with his attention to detail when it comes to blood and his boots throughout the film, thus confirming Carla Jean's fate. Right. But there is a quiet dignity in the demise of Carla Jean. Unlike in the novel, Carla Jean does not fall to pieces in the face of death. In the film, she refuses to entertain Chigurh's farce or yeah. come over to his way of thinking. She stands up to him. Carla Jean stands up to Chigurh, and it rattles him a bit. He raises his voice a little bit, and his face is telling. There's some flustered reaction there. Because he doesn't want to kill her himself, because this is the system that he's worked up in his head. Right. He was going to kill her. He didn't want it to be. But then he offered her the coin toss. So once he offered her, by his own moral code, he has to go through with it, but she won't do that. For this, and her bravery, Carla Jean is spared having her death or its immediate aftermath shown at all. Because of how the Coens choose to present this scene, it also changes the significance of what comes next, too. As Chigurh drives away from her house through the neighborhood... A car crashes into his at an intersection, badly injuring him. In probably the most shocking moment of the entire movie. And the way that the pacing is, you have these insane action sequences towards the middle of the movie. And then with Llewellyn's death, everything kind of comes to a screeching halt. And it almost feels like we're at this very slow pace. And then out of nowhere, this giant car crash. Anytime a car blindsides a car in a commercial or a show or anything i always jump i know in the novel this moment can be interpreted as further evidence of chigurh's worldview predestination bad luck no different from guessing wrong in a coin flip but the cohen's by having carla jean seemingly throw chigurh off his game make this scene feel different their interaction took exactly the right amount of time for him to be in the right place at the right time to get hit by the other car That's right. Since it feels like a response to what just happened with Carla Jean, it feels more like karma rather than chance. The rule he followed led him to this. Perhaps she was a step too far, in other words. Meaning, everything boils down to chance with him, but because of what just happened with Carla Jean, it doesn't feel like chance anymore. It feels like she fucked with him in some way, and now everything's thrown off. Right. And he's getting retribution through karma. Now... None of this means anything definitively, but I think it's how you process films and how you view it. Because even as a 24-year-old idiot, who really wasn't as film literate as I would be now, which is still not much, I guess. But I will tell you that this car crash did have that sense of it. Oh, yeah. Of retribution. Like, this is somehow punishment now. Whereas I don't think it feels that way in the book because you've been built up on this whole thing of chance. and right a coin flip and luck and on a path, et cetera, et cetera. But his path has been fucked with now because she wouldn't just call a fucking coin flip (laughs) because then he would have been out of there. Kill her or not kill her, it would have been over a lot quicker. Right. Pulling himself out of the wreck, Sugar bribes two young witnesses (laughs) for their silence and flees on foot. Pretty great interaction with these two kids. Look at that fucking bone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was pretty gross. Yeah. It also mirrors Llewellyn on the bridge over to Mexico when he bought the jacket. Now retired, Bell shares two dreams with his wife. Really? I got to hear about both of these dreams? You have a one dream limit. Well, he wasn't going to tell her, but she asked. Yeah. (laughs) In the first, he lost some money his father had given him. In the second, 
he and his father were riding through a snowy mountain pass. His father had gone ahead to make a fire in the darkness and wait for him. And then there's the abruptness of the ending. This dialogue, his description of the dreams, is taken straight from how the book ends. Right. So let's examine the dreams, because this is Please. the big ending. This scene stuck with me more than anything else about the film and made me fall in love with it immediately and have right. to see it again in the theater and all that stuff. It definitely sticks with you after every viewing. The first dream is tossed aside rather quickly. It seems like it's unprocessed feelings of failure in regard to what happened to Llewellyn and the money. He's given a task in the dream about the money, going to meet his father. He loses the money. Can't come through. If I had to guess, I'd say that word of Carla Jean's murder in Odessa has not reached Bell yet at this point, but that's mm-hmm. just a hunch. I don't really know. Yeah. The second dream is the more interesting and detailed of the two. It seems to carry more significance. It's also more ripe for interpretation. There's a general inevitability vibe. Death, his father waiting for him on the other side, maybe. But it also seems to take place in the past, as he says, which is the idealized, simpler times that Bell yearns for, a world that still made sense to him, at least he thought. Ending on, quote, then I woke up, provides the hard cut out of his dream world that never actually existed. Bell's interaction with his Uncle Ellis seems to confirm that. Perhaps Bell is accepting the truth for the first time. The world has always been hard and mean, and that depresses him more than anything else. Or does it? The first dream, dismissed quickly without much thought, could be symbolic of Bell's past. There is pain in what he could not do. But the second dream could represent the future, where Bell is headed. Perhaps in the grand scheme of things, it won't be long until he's reunited with his father once again, and there will finally be peace. The Anton Chigurhs of the world won't have any part in it. Either way, it's a lot to process right at the end of the film. (laughs) I'd say so. But I loved... The ending immediately. Yeah, same. Even if I couldn't really think of all of these things right away or, or process all of it, I sort well, of still got it. You walk it, away though. with something to think about, though. My initial reaction to the second dream was that he was talking about death and going to the other side and in a weird way finding comfort in that. That's what I took initially, but when you examine more of what he's saying about it was in the old times mm-hmm. and... It's it's all very interesting, too, because, as he says, he's 20 years older yeah. than his father ever was, and so in the dream, he's the older man. Which is weird. That's a weird image. But it is something that could only make sense in a dream. Right. I could see you having that dream, yeah. and it making sense when you're in the world of the dream, and then when you wake up, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I can remember walking away from this, though, feeling like, yes, even as like a younger person when this movie came out not understanding how the world is changing and like how the next generation coming up is different, more wild than what you would have expected it to be. Yeah, there's more of a life or death hardened edge to it when you're talking about violence and crime and police work. But I do think that essentially it is applicable to anyone. And yeah, you could talk about stupid shit like trends and music or or whatever, but (laughs) it's ultimately about getting old and feeling out of place. It just so happens that in this particular story, the stakes are a lot higher because we're talking about fucked up shit and right. psycho killers and all this stuff. But yeah, I do think that Sheriff Bell's 
story is relatable to anyone. Mm-hmm. Between this and There Will Be Blood, 2007 really yeah. revitalized my interest in film in a big, big way. Totally. As I've referenced countless times on this stupid podcast, there was that initial late 90s, early 2000s, like, whoa, I didn't know there were movies like Pulp Fiction or Fight Club or Clerks or whatever the fuck we were renting every week. This is all crazy to me. But then, you know, shit comes along. You have relationships. You're going to see movies like Sweet Home Alabama <laughs> rather than whatever cool movies are out. Other stuff. You're in college. I you was know, seeing like every horror movie that came out. And then I really would trace back the interest I have being as strong in film as it is now back to 2007, really. Not that there weren't other great years. I had fun seeing movies like Sideways or Wes Anderson movies or whatever, or Kill Bill, but I just really remember 2007 getting very interested in these type of films and being like, holy fuck, I'm all in again. For me, it was the year before with The Departed, too. Like I I loved... Yeah, I definitely saw that in the theater as well. Yeah, and just having that moment where those two movies won best picture in back-to-back years i was like wow movies are cool again this seems like a great time for movies yeah i would like to see stuff like this get nominated for stuff and sometimes it does yeah but yeah it's hard to imagine a film like this winning best picture anytime soon it's not really the direction they're going in right now yeah also revisiting this though not that i want to bash them but i just feel like the cohen's not really at this level anymore no and it doesn't seem like they're going to work together anymore but i'm not really sure maybe they will at some point but it seems like they're going in different directions the truth is that sheriff bell as decent and intelligent though he may be was never cut out to save the day in this particular tale the world is too cold too senseless he can't compete yeah and good doesn't always triumph over evil our natural inclination as an audience is to wait for Sheriff Bell to catch up to Llewellyn and Shiger, but he can't even get close enough to factor in much at all. You can't even blame Bell for the obvious relief he feels when he understands Shiger has eluded him in El Paso, as he knows that he would not have come out of that alive, and he quite clearly is relieved by this. Yeah. And so the genre... Of No Country for Old Men remains as hard to pin down as Anton Chigurh himself. Mm. There are subverted elements of a Western, but with modern crimes laced with callous and realistic violence. Neo-Western. Traditional heroes like Sheriff Ed Tom Bell can only hope to survive rather than actually win out in the end. Writer William J. Devlin calls the film a neo-Western. Mm. distinguishing it from the classic Western by the way it, quote, demonstrates a decline or decay of the traditional Western ideal, the moral framework of the West that contained innocent and wholesome heroes who fought for what is right, is fading. The villains or the criminals act in such a way that the traditional hero cannot make sense of their criminal behavior. But in true Coen Brothers fashion, you could also characterize it as any number of things. Action, suspense. Totally. It's all there. Crime thriller. It's a true modern masterpiece. And as the quote on the top of the Blu-ray says, an instant classic. Definitely. Not the most original declaration, <laughs> but it is true in this case. Absolutely. All right. I think we covered it a little bit more in depth 
this time around. I actually think we went a little bit faster than I expected us to. Yeah, it is an unbelievable movie, though, and one that it had been a while since I had gone back and revisited, and you're just blown away, you know? Yeah. Someday on this podcast, it might be fun to do our Coen Brothers ranking, although I think there might be one or two I haven't actually seen. But someday, maybe we'll do that. Oh, yeah. Not today. That would require some thought, yeah. Yeah, I think I have the top and the bottom, but it's figuring out the order in the middle. That would be hard. So we're not going to do recommendations this week because I spent a lot of time on these notes. I hope you appreciate it. Plus, (laughs) we're cramming everything in here, trying to end the year on a high note, so not a lot of time to watch other shit and really invest in any kind of serious recommendation. But I will say that much like the episode for There Will Be Blood, coincidentally, a big resource for me was Adam Naiman's book because he not only did one on Paul Thomas Anderson, he did one on the Coen brothers as well. His coffee table style books on different directors are pretty cool. Definitely. So I would recommend checking those out if you get a chance. We didn't point it out earlier, but we're going to try to say where these movies are streaming. No Country for Old Men is available to stream on HBO Max, as is everything we do, seemingly. Really? Except they for, do have a great catalog. Except they for have... Westworld, because yeah. now they're not even going to let you watch that on there anymore. <laughs> but whatever. All right, so we're going to end talking about the upcoming schedule. Oh, everybody's favorite topic. We are planning on having an episode released on Christmas Day, which we go. have done most years recently. Happy Christmas to you. And then we will release our episode number 299 either on new year's eve or new year's day i'm not sure which but sometime around then and then we will take a break leading up to episode number 300 more on that later but we've been running week after week after week which is what normal podcasts do but we're not normal (laughs) yeah it's a lot of work for me (laughs) so we're gonna take a little break in january right before episode 300 We did not mention this in the recent Give Us a Second, but that Full House Give Us a Second was probably going to be the last Give Us a Second for a while, probably until Oscars time when we do our best of the year lists and all that stuff. So just a little note that we're taking a breather from that. Although I guess the Oscars are earlier this year than they have been lately. So I guess that won't be that long of a break for Give Us a Second. (laughs) But whatever. I know. I was thinking, oh, Always yeah, it'll be t- like April, but I think they're a lot earlier this year for some reason. It's a roller coaster of emotions, people trying to follow along with something that maybe isn't happening again for a while, but then, yeah, it's going to. I know. I, yeah. I was really building myself up thinking like, okay, well, we don't have to do any more Give Us a Seconds <laughs> for a while. <laughs> Although Yellow Jacket Season 2, I think, starts maybe in March. All right. It was already renewed for Season 3 Whoa. before it even aired. So maybe we'll do a a Give Us a Second this year upcoming about the new season. That could be fun. All right. Finally, and this is the moment everyone's been waiting for, especially Matt. He keeps telling me we got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. (laughs) We don't have official numbers yet, but I think what we're going to do is you have until the end of this year, 2022, so December 31st, and I will repeat this at the beginning of the next episode and probably tweet it as well so that everyone might know. Where if you have never given us a listener request, you can still do so for free, and we will do it next year sometime. We already have at least one lined up from someone who has never 
done a listener request before. However, after December 31st, starting in 2023, there will be some kind of a payment system put in place, which wow. I know sounds horrifying. We've got corporate. Me, we're not trying to make money. If no one ever pays for us, that would be a thousand percent fine. <laughs> Believe me, this is not some money making scheme, but they do take a lot of time. The amount of hours I put into this fucking No Country for All Men episode is insane. Now, I know that's not a listener request, but I'm yeah. kind of counting it because Matt chose it as a revisited. <laughs> I had to pay. <laughs> it won't be anything too crazy, but it will probably be some kind of compensation, which we will figure out a system. If this sounds insane to you, then don't worry, because you're still going to get the regular podcast for free and nothing else is really changing. So. You don't have to participate. Please don't. <laughs> if you're like, why would I give you money to do a podcast? Then please don't worry about it. Right. And this is something we never really thought we would do. We actually made a lot of jokes in the early days of the podcast uh-huh. pretending we were going to charge money, even though no one was listening. And that was sort of the bit, I guess. This is a way to convince people not to send us any more listener requests. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We love interacting with the yeah. listeners and we're happy to do one for people. But if you want more than one or if any new people come along, It's a way to sort of make up for the amount of hours that I'm investing in this, which is a lot. (laughs) It's frankly way too much and not normal. For those of you keeping track at home, (laughs) I don't know if you've gotten that yet. Well, I'm trying to justify it because I feel guilty saying shit like this about we're asking for money, but we're not really. Only if you want a listener request after the new year. So if you have disposable income and you don't give a shit, then hey, we'll be open to- We'll take it then. Yeah, we'll be open to doing any movie as as long as we can find it somewhere. It's not it's not that obscure. Yeah. But depending on the title, you might be charged more though. No, it won't be the title. We are thinking movies over two hours might be a little bit more or something yeah. like that. There might be some cutoff in, as far as the amount of time the movie can be. There might be a scale. <laughs> like if the movie's more than three hours, it's ten times as much. <laughs> All right, anyway, don't worry about it if you're not interested in listener requests or if you definitely don't have extra money because, believe me, I get it. I would never pay money for somebody to do a special podcast, so I completely understand. But I felt like that was a way to keep the listener request alive but not have to constantly change my schedule, which is pretty much mapped out through 2026 at this point. (laughs) So, (laughs) All right, anyway... Follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review, but maybe don't factor in us asking for money for listener requests into that rating and review. <laughs> Although that would be hilarious. Yeah, people who have already given comments, us good please. reviews are yeah. going back and changing them. <laughs> Fuck these guys. These sellouts suck. Anyway, if you'd like a sticker for free, let us know. Maybe we'll yeah. expand our merch next year. I had some thoughts for merch oh boy is that free merch though no oh boy you're coming up with more ways to ask for money well this is why it's never been done yet but there's a t-shirt idea i've always wanted to do (laughs) well we'll see very limited run t-shirt yeah uh, right a very limited run if you have a sticker send us a pic of where you're broadcasting out in the world uh a listener request t-shirt combo package that would maybe sweeten the pot a little bit you have to pay us, and you, we'll do your app, but you'll also get a t-shirt. Something like that. Okay. We'll see. There's a lot of ideas floating around. None of this is set in stone. In fact, probably by the time January rolls around, we'll never mention this again. 
We'll never mention a t-shirt. We'll never mention charging for listener well, requests. It just won't happen. I will say, if you listen to this and any of this sounds interesting, tweet Zach about it. It's the only thing. It keeps everything at the front of our cultural epicenter with the show. Well, yeah, I'll have to ask about this t-shirt idea off mic, and I'll have to see if I approve it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to go probably rogue and not do it with your blessing. Well, how would people know about it then? Yeah, that's a good point. That's just why I've I never edit done the it. podcast. Yeah. So even if you try to like say it on the podcast, just cut it out. <laughs> All right. What else? Letterbox, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. As always, I love to hear from everyone on Twitter. Keep the tweets and DMs coming. Let me know what's going on. If you follow us on Letterboxd and we don't follow you back right away, just let us know somehow, either through a comment on there or through Twitter or whatever, and we'll follow you back. Thanks so much for listening. Can't stop what's coming.
Thanks a lot, you idiot. Thanks a lot, Rachel. Thanks a lot. Thanks to you, my charger's not charging on my iPad because it's got used to your iPad instead of mine. It's not charging my iPad and it's all your fault. I hope you're happy because I've told Mom.